Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this session with the really the two of the great leaders of the Center for Threat Informed Defense and in the attack community. And I'm really, really pleased to have Rich Struess and John Baker here with us today. These two, so I've been working with them for over a year. I'm Jonathan Ryber, um, Senior Director for Cybersecurity Strategy and Policy at Attack IQ. And I've been working with both of them for over a year, and it's been one of the best parts of my work at Attack IQ to learn from them and benefit from their work around Attack, their government service, the research that they've done. So really briefly, and you can read their bios on the website, uh, we have Richard Struess. He's the director for MITRE Ingenuity Center for Threat Informed Defense. Um, great history of government service and innovation in this space. And John Baker, who's the director of research and development at MITRE Ingenuity Center for Threat Informed Defense. Also like tremendous background at MITRE and research and, and pioneering this work. So today what we want to do is we want to talk about a little bit about so the origins of the center and the history of attack and and look at the research that the center has done in a very short period of time to change the game in cybersecurity. And I'm just going to be here to moderate the, the discussion and ask some questions of, of John and Rich, who like obviously you want to hear from. But when you think about applying attack and making the most of uh, the threat framework, these two gentlemen are really the leaders in the field. So Rich and John, welcome. Thanks for thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks a lot for having us, John. Great. Yeah. So one of the things we talked about, Rich, was was the sort of the origin story, like an X Men Wolverine origin story um, of the center. So why don't why don't we start with that? I think that's a good topic. Yeah, uh, I think, but but our origin story is much cooler, and there's many more explosions and car chases. <laughs> I, I and and also just want to thank uh, the folks at Attack IQ for for doing this conference. Uh, I think it's great to, to see you know the creation of resources like this. Uh, for the benefit of the entire community. So kudos to uh, you and the entire Tech IQ team. Uh, yeah, the origin story, you know, we always try to start with why. And, uh, you know, before I got to MITRE in 2017, uh, I was at the Department of Homeland Security as the chief technology officer for what at the time was called the NCIC. And uh, in that role, I created the Sticks and Taxi Cyber Threat Intelligence Sharing Standards but in that process, what I often did was meet with organizations from around the world who were interested in some aspect of cyber threat intelligence and its sharing and, and making it actionable. And I would be in these meetings with incredibly smart and talented and passionate people from, you know, maybe financial institutions and government and different kinds of organizations, you know, up on a whiteboard talking about great ideas and all the things we could do and how we could collaborate. And it was usually about halfway to the car or the metro, depending upon how I got to that meeting, that this sinking feeling would wash over me. Nothing's ever going to happen as a result of this meeting. And it wasn't because of a lack of, of expertise or passion or a need to collaborate. It was just the mechanics and the logistics and the legal and the financial. All of those hurdles that would now have to be um, you know, overcome to work on this one problem were almost always too great for that collaboration to actually see the light of the day. So, you know, when I got to MITRE in 2017, John and I had already been working closely together when he was at MITRE and I was at DHS uh, on Sticks and Taxi. And very quickly after I joined, uh, we got to work 
on, on solving this problem, on building an environment where smart and talented and passionate people from organizations in the private sector from around the world could come together and actually go from, that's a great idea. You could do this, we could do this. And the next step is actually working on it. Yeah. And that was our vision. That was our, that was our goal. That was our aspiration. And, and honestly, I'm, I'm just thrilled and always a little surprised that, you know, we actually, that that's exactly what we've done. And, and folks like attack IQ, you know, as founding members have been a, a key part of this. Um, but we now have an environment where our, whether it's an idea that we come up with or one of our participant organizations or one from the community, we actually go from, that's a good idea to working on that in, in usually in, in, in a matter of weeks. And yeah. so that yeah. to my mind is, is critically important. Yeah. And I want to get into, I want to get into the research and, and tell folks a little bit about that in a minute, but I think it might be useful for folks who aren't as familiar with the center for threat and Informed defense as I am to talk a little bit about its composition and purpose for just a minute, if you could. Sure. So, uh, you know, people might be familiar with MITRE as a, you know, 60 something year old nonprofit organization that operates federally funded research and development centers. And, you know, MITRE is the creator of things like CVE and ATTACK. Uh, but MITRE is really very much focused on uh, working directly with the federal government and isn't really set up to work with the private sector. So one of the things, one of the hurdles that we had to overcome when John and I were, were building out the idea of the center is, is uh, working to figure out how MITRE could better engage with the private sector. And in the process of that, and for lots of reasons, not just the center, MITRE decided to stand up something called MITRE Ingenuity, which is a parallel nonprofit tech foundation um, where uh, the focus of MITRE Ingenuity, instead of being the US government, is actually everyone else, the global private sector. And so in, in doing that, the, the center's remit is to work directly with sophisticated organizations in the private sector to, as we say, advance the state of the art and the state of the practice in threat informed defense. So cool. It's such a cool thing. And can you can you talk a little bit about some of the public members in case folks haven't seen the, the list? It's really impressive, right? If you go to the center's website, you'll see um, uh, our membership. We really uh, are proud that we have a diverse membership that we have. So some of the leading, you know, Fortune 100 financial institutions and healthcare institutions, um, we have professional services organizations, communication firm, technology companies, and, and then cybersecurity uh, companies as well. And so, you know, what, what we believe is that that diversity of opinion but all from a very sophisticated vantage point, make all of the work we do that much more impactful because we're not just solving the problem, looking at it through the lens of, you know, a vendor solution or a particular, you know, uh, end user perspective. We're really trying to blend that as much as possible. So the work that we wind up, that we create and wind up releasing, then hopefully is as impactful to the broadest community as, as possible. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think it's changing the world, and I'm not biased just as a member from Attack IQ, but as a cybersecurity person who's been doing this for a decade. Um, so I'm excited for us to get into that. But let's, if we could start with some definition and some doctrine uh, up front. The, the term threat informed defense is intuitive for some, but perhaps not for everyone. Can you talk a little bit about the definition and the meaning and 
why you chose to make that so important for your, your center's name? Yeah, the, um, I'm a big believer that, you know, words matter and, and, and actually having names for things matter. And so when I got to MITRE, John and, and most of the attack team uh, and the attack effort has is, is been un, in, under John's uh, organization uh, for, for years now. When I got to MITRE, there was all these people inside of MITRE and this growing, very organic community that um, was sort of where people were self-identifying as members of the attack community. And it was a set of activities about looking at your defenses through the lens of attack and then, you know, uh, uh, creating detections based on specific attack techniques and then validating those detections using, you know, breach and attack simulation or adversary emulation. And so, but that takes a long time to say. And I was walking down the hall at, at MITRE one day, I can, I, can still, I can still remember where I was. And um, I said, we need a name for this. We need a name for this. And it, I just said, threat, informed defense. And, really? and there, and that, and, and that, and that's literally, and, and then I said, and that's the name of the center. And, and then we just had the, the simple part. Once we had, I had done all the hard work of coming up with the name. Then I said to John, all right, John, let's, let's build the center and you can do most of that. <laughs> so you, you actually coined the term threat informed defense, like in a hallway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Now, I, now, I, I, yeah. I want to be clear. I have. I have no uh, claim to any of the work in attack. You know, that work started yeah, in 2012 at MITRE by, by uh, folks who were trying to solve an operational problem, which is, I think, one of the great things about attack uh, is that it's rooted in op people with operational responsibility solving real world, like near term today kind of problems. And, um, and so when I got to MITRE, uh, there was already all this great work that had been done. I just saw our opportunity, and this is where John and I really saw an, oppor an opportunity to continue our collaboration, to take this, this thing, this community, this movement, and all this energy, and, and try to create a little more focus. And, and so we often will talk about the center as the focal point for the threat-informed defense community. You know, we don't create attack in the center. You know, that, that is, you know, attack is, managed and run as this uh, internal research effort at MITRE. But we see ourselves as the curators for all these cool things around attack, how to make attack better, and how to make it easier for people to use attack and everything else in threat informed defense, because threat informed defense is bigger than just attack. I think attack is a key foundation, uh, but you'll see from the center over the next 12 months, um, us beginning to do work in areas that are outside of attack, like adversary mm. engagement, you know, where you're mm. meeting the adversary within your environment and using things like cyber deception to huh. uh, impose costs on adversaries. So, um, yeah, but that, that's how I sort of view it. That's awesome. Um, and uh, I, I didn't know that we were, that you were going to do that. That's really cool. So briefly, like I, I'm suspecting that most of the people who are tuning in are familiar with attack. Um, I think actually, if either one of you have the chance to bring up the the navigator on screen, that might be cool to just show uh, maybe John when we pivot to you in a minute. But a story that I like to tell about the impact of attack. Um, I've now been doing this cybersecurity for longer than almost anything in my life. I suppose I was a painter as a kid and I did that for 18 years. Um, but now I've been doing cyber for 11. So that's a long time, right? And I remember 
um, my boss, Jim Miller, uh, was out of the office in December 2011 or something like that. And there was an intrusion. And it was it was one of the biggest intrusions that had happened. It was on a major financial organization and we couldn't talk about it. And I remember reading about this intrusion on JWIX, um, which is a highly classified thing. And we couldn't talk in the community about what had happened, even with people who had clearances. We couldn't talk about the tactics of the of the user of the uh, of the adversary because there wasn't a lot of forensic data about it and it was just so compartmented and there was no way to share this knowledge right and that problem remained for the first like three years when i was involved in the field then i was briefed on the lockheed martin uh kill chain and then when miter attack came out if for the first time you have this periodic table of uh, the 12 techniques with all the hundreds of sub techniques below it. And for the first time you can describe the adversary behavior and fast forward from that intrusion 11 years ago to today with solar winds and you have um, DHS and CISA, the cybersecurity infrastructure security agency using MITRE attack to describe the tactics of the adversary in its alerts to the world about the biggest, one of the biggest breaches in the federal government in the, in, in history. And so this, the sort of function of attack and everyone that I've talked to over since year and a half at Attack IQ is really like brought like they love it. It's this tool for everyone to use as a single sheet of music. So it's been transformative and it's amazing to see the center now come in for the mission that you just described to, to come into its own and do all this work. So, John, um, how does the center work with Attack? What is the relationship with Attack? And if you want to talk a little bit about uh, yeah. some good examples um, uh, for how for how it works, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, gosh, the, the first you know year and a half or so here running the center has been really exciting. Um, in that time, we've we've grown uh, both our set of participants, and you know we've now run and, and delivered uh, six different research projects where we've published the results of that work, and that work has ranged from you know, uh, developing capabilities that are sort of attack adjacent, making it easy for users to operationalize attack to, um, you know, looking closely at, at uh, the attack for cloud matrix or uh, collaborating with the attack team to develop the container techniques matrix. Um, I thought I would stop and, and talk about that one just a little bit as a great example of collaboration with the MITRE attack team. Um, yeah, so when we think about our research projects, we kind of break things down and think of things from like the, the range of, there's a problem that we want to try to tackle. Um, all right, well, what, what's our solution to that problem? And, uh, you know, if we're successful, what's the impact of that, uh, this, of solving that problem, right? And so with Attack for Containers, um, we'd already had this uh, sort of growing energy and interest among our center participants in the community to better understand um, the uh, sort of real world adversary behaviors and container technologies. Um, the team at Microsoft had done a great job kind of starting to bring some focus to that by publishing a Kubernetes matrix um, about a year or so ago. Um, and, and that was like some of the indicators leading up to us uh, working with our center participants to form a project that would really dig into figuring out, is there sufficient intelligence to drive the development of an extension to the MITRE ATT&CK knowledge base to cover container techniques? Um, 
So ultimately, uh, our problem there was that, you know, defenders really didn't have visibility into how adversaries were operating and, and achieving their goals in container technologies. And um, we formed a project uh, driven by that problem. Um, and ultimately, if you go to the attack website today, um, you'll see that there's now a container techniques matrix. Mm. Um, we work very closely with our center participants to formalize that matrix. We worked with the broader cybersecurity community by publishing a draft matrix, sharing that, collecting feedback, um, and then ultimately turning that into a, a recommendation um, as a, a input into the attack knowledge base. And um, the version nine of attack release that happened at the end of April included the container technique matrix. So um, it was really cool. From my perspective, I think it's, it's awesome that what we've done is we've empowered the private sector to work collaboratively with us to identify a problem, work towards a solution and, you know, expand out our knowledge of adversary behaviors so that we can orient our defenses there. I just want to emphasize something that John said about container techniques, because uh, I think it is, it is a great example. Um, we had a number of center members who saw this as a priority and said, we want to make this happen. And in the absence of the center, it's not clear how that would have happened or where the resources that it would take to do all this work would have come from. Because, you know, MITRE, you know, funds attack through a very limited pool of, of, of internal R&D money. So there's, it's not like there's some magic fountain of money that, you know, f you know, just funds everything on behalf of the community. So we had center participants step up to make this work happen. But then the critical thing to understand is we then solicited and the attack team solicited intelligence contributions from everyone in the community. So this wasn't just about looking within the center for the best possible uh, data on container techniques. It was looking to the broader community. And that's, to my mind, a really great balance. Our members get to drive things to make sure it actually happens. But then because everything we create in the center is ultimately made freely available to the world, we're driving impact to the broader community. And wherever possible, we're, we're bringing contributions from that community into the work we do. Yeah, that's, a, I mean, this is a really interesting new model for doing research in this in, in cybersecurity, right? So you come out of uh, the public sector, Rich. John, you've been working at MITRE, which is like public and private engagements because of it, the way it works. Um, and now you've brought in these Fortune 100 companies that are collaborating on research for the first time with you. So this is like, when you think about cybersecurity, which has public impacts, um, public sector impacts and the public sector is responsible for it. And yet the private sector owns and operates so much of the space and sees so much of the threat of the adversary behavior. And then you have the public education component, which is like the world is trying to learn how to deal with this. This it's really like the, what, what the center you built is, is achieving so much for in those three areas. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of some of the collaborative benefits, like any of the lessons you've seen that you've learned in the last year and a half about that kind of collaboration? So a couple of things, and I'll say that, I, I think even though I did, uh, what, eight years in the, no, six years in the federal government, um, it just seemed longer. Um, you know, it most of you know, my, my background is, is as a technology entrepreneur. And mm -hmm. so I, I've, I, I'm a firm believer 
you know, there's a role for the public sector, there's a role for government in, in sort of driving at the policy level and, and sort of, you know, creating some sense of the level playing field. But ultimately, this is a problem that's going to, that affects the private sector and has to be addressed primarily by the private sector. And so, um, you know, it's great to see the work that CIS is doing. I think that's exactly, uh, you know, they're, they're really out there championing and, and hopefully creating uh, demand signals to the rest of the community. Hey, this attack thing, you should map your threat intelligence to it because it makes it easier for everyone to consume. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, the private sector needs to do, we need to start uh, really, you know, shouldering a burden and stepping up. And so the, the center makes it easier for organizations that are ready to sort of assume that mantle of leadership. Yeah. Or already are leaders in their in, in their industry, but but really want to now carry it forward in, into cybersecurity to actually put their money where their mouth is and uh, work in an environment where we can collaborate quickly to develop projects. You know, John mentioned we have six released projects. We have eight yeah. projects that are running right now. So for a total of 14 and we have 30 odd projects in the pipeline. So we've become a machine to to turn out R&D on a regular basis. So we're not doing one or two projects and releasing a white paper, yeah. you know, once every year or two. Yeah. We're cranking out stuff which you then find up uh, on GitHub that the center's made available to to everyone. Yeah, let's get into let's get into some of that, John. Yeah, totally. When I think about, you know, over the the last year or so, you know, what we've learned through the research program and engaging with uh, the private sector to advance certain form of defense. Um, I don't know, Rich, I, I think one of our bigger innovations really is the overall model for uh, engaging with industry and um, uh, executing research projects to, to solve problems for the public good. Um, as we run these projects, we're continually learning. We're continually trying to figure out how do we make it more efficient to go from that's a cool idea and a problem we should try to solve to a running project to delivering a quality uh, set of results for the community to leverage right and so um, we've positioned ourselves in a way where we can continually refine that research and development engine um, to make it so that we can just focus on the research problems and running research projects and delivering impactful results right and so I, I think that's been um, one of the areas where we've learned a ton over the last year and a half and, and really one of our greater innovations with the center. Yeah. Can you, I mean, it's, it's an amazing amount of work that you've produced. Can you talk a little bit about some of the big rocks that have come out? I mean, I think the adversary emulation library and the NIST yeah. framing and the NIST framework. Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, I think the adversary emulation library is a, a sort of a great story of um, kind of us coming together with our center participants and trying to be responsive to the broader community around adversary emulation. Um, Rich alluded to it earlier, um, but you know I've been at MITRE for for a long time, and you know I've run a, a department there that's focusing on adversary emulation and cyber threat intelligence. Um, through the course of our work, we've done a, a lot of uh, development of adversary emulation plans, but they were all kind of like these individual one-offs. Um, they were really valuable when we could publish them. We did some of that work for our government sponsors and couldn't share it. Um, and as we went along, we, we learned a ton about you know, what it takes to do adversary emulation well. 
right? And the reality is that there's a pretty high bar, a high cost to entry to, to go and develop an emulation plan and actually execute that emulation plan in, in a organization. So with the Avastar Emulation Library, um, we worked with our center participants to kind of step back, take a, uh, a look at all the lessons learned and start to, to normalize around one way of representing emulation plans that are fundamentally intelligence driven um, and are aiming towards making it as easy as possible for a organization to pick up that emulation plan and use it in their uh, organization to test out their defenses. Ultimately, our goal is that you know, each and every plan in the library has its same very consistent look and feel. So if you're familiar with one, you can pick up the next one. Um, and we would love to see the emulation plans adopted and picked up by industry, um, made available in different products um, so that end users can easily uh, action those emulation plans. Um, at this point, we've uh, developed two different emulation plans through center R&D projects. We have worked with the attack evaluations team to kind of standardize the way in which they describe their adversary emulation plans with each round of attack evaluations. We now add that plan into the library. So all of this work that MITRE and MITRE Ingenuity have been doing around adversary emulation, we're trying to bring together into one format, one venue to make it really accessible to the community. And we work with our participants to continually evolve the, the contents of the library to figure out what groups we should be focusing on next. Where are the, the places that we should be looking to expand out that library over time? It's definitely yeah. something where we've learned a lot just through the course of like looking across all our work and, and bringing it together in one venue for everybody. Um, and, uh, and, and that in itself has been really exciting and, and just seeing it get, you know, really broadly used um, across industry has been, been great to see. Uh, one thing I'd add is by doing that as a, this uh, developing the library and developing emulation plans as central research projects, um, we've benefited tremendously uh, from the collaboration with our participants. You know, for example, as, as we're developing those plans, we're getting you know, feedback and intel inputs from our participants. We're getting um, the plans tested by a variety of red teams and um, range environments that, uh, that are stood up for each emulation plan. And so having more of our participants actively involved in the refinement and development of those, I think is leading to overall better quality emulation plans and I think making them more useful to end users. Yeah, I mean, it, this the emulation library. When I first learned learned about it, is such a it's such a cool concept. I mean, obviously for us at Attack IQ, like we build automated scenarios, we incorporate the emulation plans into our product, which is so that's like a key part for us. But if you think about it, like to be able this is the first time you're able to take pick an adversary ultimately, and it will be you know imagine a bookshelf like the one behind me where you have you know APT twenty nine Fin six bunka bunka bunka, and you can just go down and pull it off and run it against your defenses and know that it's been vetted by, you know, X, Y, and Z fortune 100 company, plus the big brains that are on the screen in front of you right now. Right. It's such a cool concept. I'll take that. I'll sign up for that library. I'll get a library card. The, uh, the, the other thing I think this is, you know, project is a great example of is the fact that, you know, commercial adoption of center RD and you know, we make it freely available to the world, but we do it under commercially friendly open source licenses. We consider commercial adoption to be a feature, not a bug. You know, we, we want companies 
whether they're center participants or not, to be able to pick up the work and use it. Because that's how we ultimately have, we, that's how we ultimately maximize our impact. Um, you know, because as a nonprofit entity operating in the public interest, fundamentally what we're measured on is our impact. And the, the, the question I have to keep answering and should always have, be able to answer uh, is what impact is your center and its participants in your R&D programming having on the world? You talk about changing the game on the adversary. How are you doing that? Are you doing that? How much are you doing it? Uh, and so, you know, when when we released that 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 very first, it was our very first R&D project, Fin6 Adversary Emulation Plan. Uh, you know, Attack IQ as one of the sponsors of that work was able to you know that day announce that you know your support for that. I think that's a great example of the kinds of, of work we're doing in the center and the fact that then other organizations can pick that up and use it uh, and incorporate it if they choose to um, is a great example, again, of the power of, of collaboration. Yeah. Oh, it's, it was, that, was a, that was a cool day. I think it was February. I remember. Um, but the next big one, which I, I want to talk about, too, is the NIST 800-53 alignment to, to MITRE ATT&CK and what that means. Um, because I saw this as a major strategic movement in the history of cybersecurity. So, John, I want to flip back to you yeah. on that on that project, uh, and then we can open yeah. up the conversation. Yeah, that's a, that's a great one. And I think uh, to date, that might be our most widely used uh, project. Um, pretty exciting. So uh, what we found was uh, just across the attack user community among our center participants, one of the most frequently requested um, uh, resources was uh, something that would help organizations and users understand how their security capabilities um, uh, stood up against attack, right? And so uh, if you were a organization using 853, you wanted to understand of the controls identified in 853, how did those controls help your organization uh, defend against real world threats, right? Yep. Um, and what we found was there was a, a number of organizations out there that had, um, you know, done this, but maybe done it in a way that they couldn't share it or started down this path and realized, you know, wow, it's really a, a lot of work to take this on. Um, and, you know, from our perspective, yeah, it, it is a tremendous effort to put together mappings for attack to 853. Um, but it's it's actually really important. And you, you look at the... Um, user community and the number of organizations that rely on or are required to use 853, um, if we can take some small steps within the center to make it easier for them to understand how their security controls uh, stack up against real world adversary behaviors, um, I think we've done everybody a huge service, right? And so yeah. um, that project itself is, is fundamentally about, you know, coming together as a team, putting um, a, uh, a really solid set of mappings of um, attack techniques to the collection of 853 controls that might mitigate those uh, adversary behaviors and publishing them for the world to use. So that work comes with, um, you know, documentation on the methodology because we want to be transparent. We want it to be usable. We want people that are using that content to understand how we arrived at those mappings. Um, the mappings are, you know, fundamentally a subjective process. And so to make them useful, we got to document that methodology. We have to help our users understand how we arrived at those decisions, right? Mm -hmm. 
And then we've provided tools and resources to make it easy to like visualize those mappings in the attack navigator. So you can see, you know, attack navigator layers showing you the techniques um, that we identified and mapped to, to various controls. You can see kind of the complete picture um, for all techniques that we mapped um, to all of 853. Um, so those resources are up there uh, and available on GitHub now um, for a, uh, 853 version 4 and 853 version 5. Um, we mapped attack version 8, and we're in the process of updating to attack version 9 uh, following yeah. the recent attack release there. I, I think fundamentally what that project represents is a tremendous gift of time back to the community. Because John wasn't kidding. I mean, I don't know. I lost count of the number of organizations that said, yeah, we've started to map. And it's a big, it's a big undertaking. We have over the that project, which we released last December, has over 6,300 individual mappings of attack techniques to controls in 853 uh, up on our GitHub site. And what so what by us doing this, we're not saying that this is the end all be all for everyone, but it's a great starting point for organizations that are using 853 directly or indirectly through like CSF mappings or whatever to you know, sort of quickly get cyber to the answer. Cybersecurity framework. Yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah, the NIST yeah. cybersecurity framework. Yeah. So it, it, it's a, we, we, by us doing this job once really well with the support of our center participants, we've just given the community um, uh, something that they can, so instead of them starting in the sub-basement, they're starting on the second or third floor uh, to, to be able to answer that question, hey, this thing just happened they used, you know, Sister just told us about this thing. They mapped it to an attack technique or sub-technique. Do we have a control in place to protect us? And you literally can make that a, instead of, well, we'll get back to you in three months after we do the comprehensive mapping. It's like, yes or no, whatever the answer is. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. ultimately as a defender, you can, you don't need to worry about doing that detailed analysis of all of attack to all of 853. You can just focus on your environment, the threats that you care about and understanding um, how the controls you've implemented stack up against those threats. Yeah. I mean, I, I love this project for a number of reasons, right? Um, when I first started working in cybersecurity, like the, it was, it was sort of compliance was the world and you had a sense that these folks maybe didn't operate in the threat space that much. Now I'm not knocking compliance people at all. And I'm not knocking people that use abacuses and like keep track of where we are and various things. Like I'm not knocking those people, but it, like I'd lived in Sudan, I'd lived in the Middle East. Like I'd seen like angry people up front who, and what they wanted, like, you know, plenty of people in the security space have, have been around the world and seen violence and like understood what, what the nation state, what hostile nation states want to do to you. And it's for the first time you can now take, um, threat behaviors of nation state actors, people who want to steal your information or break your infrastructure and do really bad things to you and align it to this compliance framework that had emerged historically as this sort of foundational compliance function. But compliance itself doesn't equal security. And what you've done with this project, and I'm really on the receiving end, so you educated me and now I'm like, you're John the Evangelist on this, is like, You've aligned the threat behaviors so you can actually prove whether or not your compliance is effective. Because what we're talking about is cybersecurity effectiveness. Because just because you're trying to, like, you can check off a compliance box three times a year doesn't mean that you're actually hold, being able to carry water when you need to if the adversary comes at you. 
And the, the thing about attack, and if you run continuous tests, which is what we're advocating for, is you're actually making the compliance framework valuable within a real-world context. And that, to me, is like fundamentally transformative. Um, and I, I just think it's awesome. Yeah, I mean, that's why, you know, I, I often talk about attack as a lens that you can use. Um, and, and so in that case, you know, this compliance is, is, is a thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not a good, it's a thing, right? We, it's important to understand and have controls and, and know what those are. But what attack does is once you've built that threat model of, oh, we're facing nation state actors interested in our intellectual property or, oh, we're facing criminal groups who are trying to uh, monetize our PII or our patient information or whatever it is, or ransomware. Um, once you have that threat model, that you know, attack allows you to somewhat mechanically reduce that to then, well, here are the techniques that then you should focus on first. And then from that, that gives you your punch list of, okay, if these are the techniques that, that barring any other, in the absence of any other prioritization, probably the best place to start. What are the controls I need to have in place? Oh, yep, 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 nope, don't got that. Okay, let's let's see about implementing that control. And it's not now just sort of an unfunded mandate you levy on users, hey, we're putting this control in place. Well, why? Well, it's because it actually is demonstrated to have efficacy in mitigating this adversary behavior that's of real importance to us. So, you know, that that notion of, I think it helps the compliance. I think we help each other. The compliance world, and I was on the Security and Compliance Weekly podcast uh, a little while ago, had a great conversation. And it was really like, you know, you have peanut butter, we have chocolate. And, you know, putting the two together, the whole is truly greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah, particularly with peanut butter and chocolate, if we're being honest. I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm not um, getting hungry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, that's awesome. I mean, I think like ultimately one, one of the things that's frustrating about watching these ransomware attacks happening in the last month is we know that we have these tactics and techniques under MITRE attack that if, if companies would just run these emulations against themselves in advance, they could figure out where to invest to prevent a ransomware attack. That's like... That's a message that, that we, I've tried to get out since the after Colonial Pipeline and um, uh, and the JBS hack is like, look, we can you can actually solve these problems. You have assume breach, invest in best in class defenses, and then exercise those defenses using attack. And I I think um, one thing I, I know we want to talk go back to the projects and and how you've cranked out research so quickly. But could we just talk a little bit about how you've heard? from either center participants or others about how attack has helped them improve their efficiency and effectiveness? Yeah, I, I so much to my mind, the fundamental use case of attack, you know, we can tick off a bunch of use cases and your attack for dummies book does a good job of that. Um, but to my mind, the fundamental use case of attack is as that common language. So it's a communications tool. It's a way for people to have meaningful and efficient and, um, accurate conversations about threat and their posture with respect to threat. So fundamentally, I think it's allowed people to paint an evidence-based picture of their security posture for whatever stakeholders they need to communicate that with. So it could be, you know, uh, from, you know, SOC director to the CISO saying, here's where we're at, here's where we're going, 
from the CISO to the to the board. Um, it could also be from operational people to vendors saying, we need something that's going to help us fill these four gaps. Um, and, and it sounds simple and it is a simple concept, but in practice, it's incredibly powerful. So, yeah. you know, we have, you know, we've seen people in the community using it lots of different ways. Uh, but I think fundamentally that that using it as a way of communicating in really concrete terms what the posture of the organization is, um, the, where you have protections, where you have detections, you know, and I'm sure near and dear to your heart, where you have, you know, continuous validation of those controls. That's all, it's all a piece, you know, part of this overall puzzle of, of painting an accurate data-driven picture of your defenses relative to publicly reported adversary behavior. Yep, exactly. John, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I think, you know, kind of building on what Rich said there, it, it gives us a common vocabulary. And so we, we've seen attack being used and impactful across a, a pretty wide range of, of use cases. I think there's a, a couple other, you know, key things that uh, were sort of goals of attack that we've uh, started to see a real shift in. It's, you know, attack is trying to shift a focus towards understanding adversary behaviors. Um, it's important to, you know, track and uh, detect IOCs and, and focus on IOCs, but we also want to elevate the conversation a bit and think about adversary behaviors. And so um, what Attack has done is like really tried to shift that conversation across the cybersecurity community. And um, it's done it in a way that uh, puts together this knowledge base, this resource that's easily accessible to all. Um, that's one of the other things that's been really important to, I think, the success and the impact that uh, the MITRE ATT&CK team has had is that it's open, it's freely available to all. They've done a lot of the hard work to collect and analyze intelligent reports um, and put it in a simple, accessible, consistent uh, knowledge base for everybody to build off of. So. Yeah, that's such a neat thing. Um, so. Let's let's head back to the research that you've produced, and then I think we want to move to like how to make all this really useful for people. But John, how has the center produced so much? What is your secret, and can you share it? Well, I'm willing to buy, you know, whatever whatever secret is, I'll pay for it in a bottle. Yeah, I, I think unfortunately I, I probably already gave the secret away earlier. Um, I think <laughs> that the, the reality is that um, you know we we have a, a, a set of participants that are really invested in coming together collaboratively to advance threat informed defense. Um, so, you know, it, it absolutely starts with our participants. Um, we've built a framework for running research projects where we're continually evolving and trying to mature that framework um, so that we can go from good idea to running project in, in just a couple of weeks. Um, and we've tried to put ourselves in a position to um, to listen, to hear from all of our participants, um, understand their problems, understand, you know, their ideas, uh, work broadly across the community to do the same thing and uh, kind of whittle that down to the set of projects that we run and run them through that framework. So um, I think I kind of gave a lot of the secret away earlier. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to give and, and now I'm going to give the rest of it away. Um, you know, one of the things, and, and John and his team do such a great job at this. Um, the, the reason we never describe the center as a consortium is, is that 
we use this, this I, I think, uh, unique model where um, while we are encouraging and do get the direct participation in projects by our, by our participants, um, ultimately, the set, it's, it's MITRE technical staff, MITRE researchers who are, who are doing or responsible for all the heavy lifting. Uh, mm -hmm. in research projects. What yep. that means is our participants get to come in, give us their goals, give us their problem statements, give us their requirements, um, and then shape those projects. And again, they get to participate in those projects however much or little as they want to while they're running. But John and his team have a group of people who are then gonna make sure that happens. And we get to we get to reach a, across the over 8,000 talented technical staff at MITRE to, to staff projects. But that's one of the reasons we get stuff done. The other reason is we, we're really kind of picky about our participants. And so everyone shows up, they agree to the ground rules up front, and they show up with resources to make, to make these projects happen. Uh, and I think without that, you then wind up in situations which are a lot more like potluck dinners where you're kind of really counting on everyone to show up that night with the food. And if I, if I get busy and I don't show up with the main course, then I've kind of ruined dinner. So, yeah. you know, we we have a we have a different model, uh, and and, it, and it's worked well for us. Or if you're in my case, you end up going to Whole Foods at the last minute, so you get the same pecan pie <laughs> everyone. Um, that's that's. I mean, I th I don't know. Like I'm a historian and I'm biased, but like I'm gonna. I think history is gonna look back at this and say this was an incredible model because. You know, you've got these large organizations, they want to solve these problems, they do not have the research staff that MITRE has, they do not have the time. And when you scale the solution, the, 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 the team to work on the problem, you bring in smart folks from leading companies all over the world, you're, you're, you're adding into the, the native research within MITRE, uh, and then solving problems together, which is like, fundamentally how, the, as far as I can tell, the only way to solve these problems in cybersecurity. So Let, let's, we're also let, bringing yeah. in, I just wanted to say, I just want to point out, we're also, yeah. you know, some of our members do have significant research and development staffs, yet they can, but they choose to participate in, in center projects in those areas where they think doing work in an open forum where the results will be freely available to the world actually is the best, is the best strategy. So, so I, I want to give our, our members um, who have extensive R&D staffs, you know, real credit for, mm -hmm. for stepping up and, and going through that calculus of, is this something we can do in the center and getting to yes, and then participating, even though they could, you know, they have smart engineers who may very well be able to create something because they recognize the power of having all these people collaborating to make the project better, to then have more impact, to have more people who have a stake in the project's success. So I yeah. just wanted to just yeah, yeah, want to give no, them right. props yeah. for that. That's a good point. I mean, uh, even just on, on our Attack IQ team, Jose Barajas is a malware researcher, and I know that he's gained tremendous amount and put a lot of effort into the center. And it's been like a force multiplier for, for his big brain to be able to test ideas with, with you guys and then benefit from the work of others. So that's, that's a great point. Um, so, you know, we're, let's wind, let's move towards the end of this discussion where that's where we are. Um, and we've been talking at this sort of very high level of research and it, the concepts that y'all are doing, which is super impressive. And it's available on the, on the GitHub and on your website. 
But what about for folks that are just beginning to dip their toes into the attack process? Like, how would you recommend folks get started? And what are the, what are some other calls to action coming out of looking at your research and, and what you're doing? We well, we continue to, and I'll be the first to acknowledge that for all of the great work that's been done in attack and that we've done in the center, um, I, I still think that. Uh, the, the work is large, is mostly accessible to those organizations with, you know, dedicated cyber threat analysts and, and you know, relatively robust security teams, and uh, which is a big need. And I think we, we uh, the MITRE attack team and the Center's R&D projects have, have uh, met that challenge well. But um, what about the, the small regional hospital that has maybe you know, one or two people in IT security, if that, or use a managed security service provider. How are they benefiting from it? And the answer is, is uh, you know, we, don't, we don't have resources for them. I mean, they're all accessible, but it, does certain, it takes a certain level of sophistication and resource and time. And so one of the things that we're looking at in minor ingenuity is how do we, over time, help this community, much in the same way we've been trying to lower the bar and the barriers through our MITRE Tech Defender training and certification program. How do we how do we lower the barriers? So as a independent nonprofit um, organization, how can we make it easier for that regional hospital or that smaller financial institution or that uh, energy company that's serving you know upper Midwest market or whatever it is? How do we help them with uh, with with benefit from attack, knowing that they're not necessarily ever going to have the resources of a Fortune 50 uh, financial institution. But we can't forget about them. We haven't forgotten about them. Um, but it's a, it's a challenge. And that's not something we're going to solve by ourselves. That's something I think we're going to have to solve as a community. Yeah, yeah I, I just add, you know, when I, I think about our, our research program and the work we've done, um, you know, Rich mentioned it a, a little bit ago. Um, ultimately, we're all about impact. Um, our, our goal really is about really trying to make a difference, having impact on cybersecurity. Um, and, you know, one of the most important things that we can do in our research program, uh, we can, we might have a, a great uh, research project and excellent results, but um, if nobody knows about it, um, we're not going to have any impact. So I just say as a kind of a, a call to action from my perspective, um, check out what we've done. Tell us what you think about it. Spread the word. If you think it's useful, if you think it's impactful, just help us spread the word. Um, I think that's one of the, the sort of the critical next steps we need to do to just help raise awareness of the work that we've done and increase the impact of the work that we've done so far. Um, and, you know, as I look forward at our research program, you know, stay tuned. Uh, there is tremendous demand and interest among our participants in the community and kind of mapping more things to attack to better understand how those capabilities stack up against threats, making it easier for people to kind of take attack internal to their organizations, build upon it, extend it, um, and stay in sync with the attack knowledge base. So we have work coming in kind of all those areas. Um, and, and really much more out of the research program. So stay tuned, um, spread the word, and, and let us know what you think about the, the work that's up there. Well, it is it is such an honor to partner with both of you. Um, obviously at Attack IQ, like we, we echo, we participate in, in the center. We're big participants in the center. Uh, we love echoing your research and sharing it with the world. It's um, as a writer and communicator from my standpoint, it, 
it's a huge, you make my life a lot easier because you give me such good content to talk about. But then for us as a company, most importantly, our platform and capabilities and our scenario library, our purpose is to make adversary emulations and all the research that you do accessible to companies of every shape and size so that they can test and validate their cybersecurity effectiveness. Rich, you didn't, you probably didn't mean to team me up to say that, but we are trying to operationalize and make your research as available uh, and useful to everyone um, to increase their cybersecurity effectiveness. And um, we, we love being partners with you. It's, uh, it's intellectually challenging. It's, um, we feel like we're at the cutting edge. We are at the cutting edge. And I commend both of you for, for starting the center and for all the work that you've done uh, in advance and all the work that you're going to continue to do. So thank you very much for coming on today and um, appreciate it very much. Thank you for the opportunity uh, to, to talk to you today and, and everyone uh, in attendance. I, I, I just would say that, you know, the center exists because of our participants. Um, you know, so thank you to Attack IQ and, and all the center participants who make the work we do possible, um, because that's that's ultimately the uh, the reason we're able to do what we do is that organizations have decided to step up and exercise that leadership, both te technological leadership and also just sort of, uh, uh, you know, setting an example of what it means to invest in uh, collaborative research and development in the public interest. And to demonstrate that that can be done in a way that's meaningful with, you know, creating uh, actionable results in a timely manner, uh, I, I think is really important to sort of just send that message out that we just, you know, there's some, sometimes there's some learned helplessness, I think, in our community and people just get, yeah, there's nothing you can do. Actually, I reject that notion. There is absolutely things that we can and should be doing and we are doing in the Center for Threat Informed Defense. Well said. Great note to end on. Thanks, gents. We'll see you soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. We interrupt this broadcast for, yes, another break. Here's a quick episode of Cyber Snacks While You Wait. Let us know what you're snacking on, and we'll be back in a bit.